situated here? You guys having a good time at camp? How many of you got uh, terribly sunburned yesterday? Yes. Good for you. Good for you. Vitamin D. I could hardly sleep on my back. My back is just fried. So if any of you come up to me and give me a five star on the back, I don't know what I'll do. I would forgive you, I would, eventually. But that doesn't give you license to do it, okay? Just because you're forgiven, you know that you'll be forgiven, doesn't mean that you should do it. Uh, But anyways, yesterday, it's just so pretty being on this island. Man, I went up to the cross up here, and I was just sitting and just thinking, and I'm looking out at the ocean, and the only thought that could come to my mind is, I am so small. And it's just good to like be able to sit and ponder. And even, anyone go snorkeling yesterday? Yeah, okay, so I, I went snorkeling. It was, so, it was so fun to see all the fish and all the, the plant life and, and the different rocks and everything and the seaweed. And then you think that there are miles and miles and miles of that across the whole entire globe. And every little bit of detail is ordered and was created by God. Every little microscopic detail. And then you think, even on the macro level, all the the massive stars in the sky, the heavens, the earth, was created by our God. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. So I've just been having a great time at camp. I would just encourage you that after this time, as we go into life groups, those are our time for us to articulate what God is doing in our heart, to draw out our hearts, to confess sin to one another. 1 John 1, 7 says that if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So if you want to uh, have a deeper fellowship and a deeper communion with one another, that, uh, the, uh, that's the result of walking in the light. What I think that means is walking honestly before one another. That as Christians, we all know that we are sinners. Therefore, it should not surprise us when we confess sin. <laughs> when we reveal the fact that we actually are what we say we are. And then to be encouraged by your leaders and your peers to keep following Jesus. And that's what discipleship is. So I'm going to pray for our time now and also for the life group time after this as we continue to behold Jesus. Father God, thank you so much for... This camp, thank you for your creation. Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us how small we are, that there is such a gap between the creator and the creature. Lord, and that humbles us. It brings us low to to know that you are such a mighty, eternal, unchanging, self-sufficient God who is not like us. You're not controlled by passions like we are. You're impassable. You are immutable. You're omniscient and sovereign and in control of all things. And yet, you are imminent. Yet, you came low. Yet, you condescended in the form of a man. And you walked upon this earth. You sent Jesus, who willingly, for the joy set before him, went to the cross for sinners like all of us, Lord, you are an amazing God. So continue to humble us as we look to Jesus, as we look to your word, and give us a joy, just a joy in Christ this morning. A joy that it is good news, that when we talk about the good news, that we would 
talk about it with a smile. Because it is good news, Lord, and that you would just penetrate our hearts this morning. Help me and help us, Lord, to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so far, I've made the argument from the first sermon that the solution we all need, every single one of us, non-believer and believer alike, whether you're lost in sin or trying to grow in grace, we need to look to Jesus. If you're not a Christian or you are a Christian, the way that you are saved, the way that that happened, it was that through the power of the Holy Spirit, implanting new life into you, giving you faith to look away from yourself and to look to Jesus, to apprehend Him in all of His grace and mercy. And when that happened, all that is Christ became yours. Your life was changed. A new life, a new creation, right? That's what, happened. That's what happens to sinners when they look to Jesus. Now as believers... We say that every portion and component of our salvation is found in Christ. Yes, that includes not only justification, but our sanctification and our glorification. It's all of grace and mercy. And so, we likewise, as Christians who are united to Christ, we grow in grace the deeper we go into Christ. The deeper we, we, the, the deeper we go into who He is and what He's done for us, by beholding the Lord of glory by being tra- and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We looked at that, right? And so mat- no matter who you are, beholding Christ by faith, and faith is not faithfulness. Faith is resting in Christ. It's clinging to Christ. It's leaning upon Christ. It's like when I saw my mom in the, in the kayak. She, she was resting her whole weight in the kayak. And it buoyed her up right above the water. It kept her from falling into the chaos of the waters or whatever. Whatever the illustration is, right? She was leaning her whole That's what faith is. It's resting. It's like many of you, after getting two hours of sleep and on an exhausting day, you're going to get on your mattress and you're not going to keep one foot off on the ground and then half your body on. The, no, you get your whole body onto the mattress and you rest. That's what faith is. It's resting in Christ alone for your salvation. So no matter who you are, we are called to behold Christ by faith. Turning our eyes off of self, like Peter, that's, and we're looking to Jesus. So in the last two sermons then, to apply this, we focused our attention on Christ, seeing in Mark chapter 1, the heart of Christ towards sufferers and sinners, and how Christ is moved with pity towards the leper, which then we're reminded as believers that we have such a kind Savior, that no matter where we are in this life, no matter where you find yourself suffering or struggling with sin and temptation, you can always go to Jesus and implore Him and bow to Him and He will make you clean. Either for the first time or we constantly go back to Him. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. That's what we learned in the first sermon. And then last night, we saw Jesus' heart for holiness. His seriousness against sin. That when we come to understand the gospel of grace, that should not produce in us a a laxity, if that's a word, not a laxative, but, but 
uh, uh, laxity towards sin, a licentiousness. That if grace may abound, then, then, or may I sin, that grace may abound. That, if you ask that question, that's how you know you're understanding the free gospel of grace. That's good. But the, Paul's answer is, by no means. But rather, because of what Christ has done, now we pursue holiness. Not to earn his love, but because we are loved. Because we are clean. And so there's this tension in the Christian life as a believer. That if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation upon you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And so there's a freeness, a boldness that we could always run to Jesus, while at the same time, we are to have a holy reverence and a fear. It's kind of like at home with my father and my mother who are here, and I was disrespecting my mother, they would say, there's, there's nothing that I could do that would separate, separate me from their love. They love me no matter what. But there's definitely certain aspects in my life when I was disobeying my mom, and there's nothing that she felt that she can do that she'd be like, wait for your father to get home, right? And you're like, oh, I know my father loves me. I know he cares for me. But there's still a holy reverence, right, of fear. And that's the Christian life. A holy boldness that we could always run to him while at the same time having a reverence. That's what we looked at. At least I tried to expound and probably in a clunky way last night. And so, if Jesus, if we saw that Jesus' Jesus' heart for sinners and Jesus' heart for worship, then this morning in John chapter 5, you could turn there, we're going to see Jesus' power over sin and death. So Jesus' power. And it's one of these, those texts, it's one of my favorites. And I've been influenced somewhat by, on this text by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And if you want to hear a way better sermon than mine, then go listen to his on this text. It's phenomenal. But we're going to see Jesus' authority and power over sin and death. And so John chapter 5 is the start of a new section in John. Before this, John has tried to draw out, the Holy Spirit through John, has tried to draw out a few things about man's spiritual condition. And so in chapter 3, we see that Nicodemus, this Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night. And so what John is trying to draw out there is to show us through Nicodemus is, is man's spiritual pride and blindness. Nicodemus is blind. Jesus says, truly, truly, you must, in order to see the kingdom, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus is like, how am I going to enter back into my mother's womb? How does that work? Right? He's blind. He is blind. And then in John chapter 4, Jesus comes to the woman at the what? The well. That's right. And she's also blind. She's like, uh, Jesus like, fetch me some water, right? And he's like, no, I can give you living water. She's like, what? Give me this water all the time. She's blinded, right? And, and what that passage is trying to show us is man's spiritual thirstiness, in a, in a sense. That everywhere in this life will not satisfy, but Jesus, who's sitting upon the well, as a picture of, I am the fountainhead of living water. You want living water? You want to never thirst again? then you must drink from me. 
I give this living water. And so then we come to our text in John chapter 5. So we see man's spiritual blindness, man's spiritual thirstiness, and now we see point number one, man's spiritual deadness or inability. His inability, okay? Let's look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 5. After this, Jesus, this the woman at the well story, and then Jesus heals the official son. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, uh, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which is translated um, house of anointing, I guess, uh, or something like house of mercy, I believe, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So let's get the scene. Let's picture the scene. There are these two pools, and there's these five sections where you could sit. And around these pools are covered with the most helpless and hopeless people in all of society. All of these weak, broken Invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And they're sitting here. And as you could tell in the text, verse 4 is kind of missing. Because there's not much evidence of this, this, that this verse was in the earliest of manuscripts. But if I were to read it at the very bottom of your Bible, you might see it. What they believe, why were they hanging out around these pools? Well, this is what all these people believe. For an angel of the Lord would go down at certain seasons into the pool and stir the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. And so... There was this superstition around these pools that when they're stirred up, which some people just believe that when the springs would come up and, and more water would come up into the pools, sometimes there was this red silt that would come up and, and, it, and they thought it was medicinal. They thought it would heal them. It's kind of superstition. And so these people, the hope, most hopeless and helpless in all of society, they're lined up, they're laying down, waiting to be, quote-unquote, healed. And what they believed is that when the waters were stirred up, the first person to get in the water would be healed. So you think about it. When would the blind people see that the water is stirred up? When would the lame people who cannot walk be able to get in before someone else? And then the paralyzed people, they can't move at all unless they have friends to help them. They are completely unable in and of themselves to find healing. And this is a great picture of man in his sin. It's a great picture. And I, I believe that John is trying to make this connection. That man lost in sin. That this is what man looks like when he exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships the creature rather than the creator. This is what happens. This is the result of man beholding himself rather than God. It is a spiritual lameness, a spiritual paralysis, a spiritual blindness. And isn't that what the Bible says? Man is trapped and lost in sin. 
If you just turn your page to John 8, look what Jesus says about sin. In verse 34. John 8, 34. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a what? A slave to sin. A slave to sin. And so in this picture we see of, of all these lame and paralyzed people waiting, we see a great picture of man in his absolute need for a savior. Man lost in sin, enslaved to sin, spiritually blind, enslaved to the passions and their lusts. Man rejecting God in his natural state, in rebellion. In fact, Romans 8, 7 says this, For the mind set on the flesh, those living in the flesh, is, is not indifferent to God, but hostile to God. For the mind set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot like a paralyzed man trying to get into the pool before someone else, in and of himself, he has no power to do it. He's paralyzed. And that is man in his sin. It says, indeed, he cannot. Those who are in the flesh, Paul says in Romans 8, 7, cannot please God. They are unable to please God. I mean, you guys know what the word cannot means. When you ask your teacher, can I use the restroom? And they're like, I don't know, can you? Do you have the ability to do that, right? And they're like, may I use the restroom? And they're like, yes, you may, right? What does Paul say about man lost in sin? That they cannot please God. They are, they are spiritually unable to please God. In fact, not only are their wills and their desires enslaved to sin, unable to come to Jesus, to love Him, lost in sin, enslaved to sin, but also their minds. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So you think of your favorite celebrities, your favorite artists, those people, those social media influencers that don't know Jesus. They, they cannot understand the things of God. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. And so when we're looking to people who do not fear God for knowledge and understanding and wisdom... We're looking in the wrong place. We're looking to people who do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're totally depraved. And so this picture here, this awful, sad picture of this pool of Bethsaida is a picture of man lost in sin, spiritually unable to obey. Why is this? Why is man lost in sin? Because of the fall. And the imputation of Adam's sin to all of us. Because Adam's sin, because of his disobedience, we all have sinned. And we know that because we're all going to die. That's Romans 5. That's the, the logic. The product of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We who are in Adam are spiritually like the invalids. Helpless and hopeless. And believers, for those of us that are in Christ... 
This is what we were saved from. This is who we once were. Right? Doesn't Paul say that? You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. But, by the, but, but according to the great love and kindness of our Savior, He saved us. That's another passage. Not according to our deeds, but according to His mercy. Titus 3. We were lost and dead in sin. And so the story continues. So this is the state. Total dominion of sin, right? And the story continues, but it sadly gets worse. Gets worse. Not only do we see man's spiritually deadness, but also, number two, we see the spiritual bankruptcy of religion. The spiritual bankruptcy of religion. And what I mean by religion is man's good works. Man's striving to be good. Our performance to merit God's love or to merit healing. Where do I get this in the text? All right, let's read the text again. Now, verse 2. Now, there is Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called was uh, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which had, has five roofed colonnades, and in these laid a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then it focuses on one man. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Imagine that. 38 years. And he's sitting here, longing to be healed. And look at verse 6. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? We're going to get into this verse in a second. But Jesus offers him free grace. Do you want to be healed? And look what the man says. Look what the man says. The sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And in this verse, we see that not only is this man spiritually unable to heal himself, but he's looking to everywhere but Jesus for healing. He's looking with superstition to the pool. He needs help. I have no one to put me in the pool. Right? He has no friends, think about that, to help him. He had no money. Perhaps some of the other people, they had, they had some financial resources so they could hire someone out. And when the waters were stirred up, they could throw him in there, just chuck him into the pool. But this man had no one. He had no family, no source of income in order to pay for someone to help him. No friends. And as he's looking at the only source of his healing, Jesus Christ, he is putting his trust in the pool of dead water to heal him. Sir, his source of salvation right in front of him. In front of him, He's like, but I have no one to put me in the pool. Jesus is like, do you want to be healed? I need to go in the pool. <laughs> he's rejecting Christ's offer in a sense. The living water of the pool. And mankind, this is just such a, a perfect picture of mankind. Since Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have always believed that salvation can be found in, in ourselves or in our works or in someone other than God. And even as believers, we forget this, right? We forget as Christians that even our best works are tainted with sin. They will not pass the test of God's holiness. And so to put our faith in our good works, 
is really a rejection of Christ's good works that he performed for us and imputed to us by virtue of his death and resurrection on the cross. By virtue of his life lived for us. I got saved in eighth grade. So, your age, and I was at a camp, and I was a spiritual invalid. And God saved me. But then I lived the rest of my high school career thinking and believing. I would never say this theologically. I was always correct and always precise. You know, I would always say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But functionally, whenever I struggled with sin, whenever I was tempted, whenever I was going through spiritual dryness, whenever I was apathetic or unmotivated, I would always then begin to look to myself, to my discipline and my works to get me on the right track to the point where sometimes when I was living in ongoing sin as a high schooler, I would come to youth group and I felt like I couldn't even sing or listen to the sermons until I somehow got myself into a better state to then come to Jesus. Like I have to clean myself up and do penance. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I acted like one. <laughs> I need to get my act together and then I could sing loud. And then I could participate in life group. And then I could take notes and, and be a good Christian boy. All the while, what am I doing? I'm looking to myself rather than to Christ. My eyes are on myself rather than Him. And we do this as believers. If I just read a little bit more, if I just pray a little longer, those things are great. I encourage you to do it. But like this man... We look inward, away from from Christ for help. We look to ourselves when Christ stands in front of us saying, Do you want to be healed? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Why not? (laughs) We're prideful, right? We're self-righteous. And so like this man who looked to the pool for salvation, for healing... We likewise look everywhere but Christ. Sometimes we're even tempted by the world. You know, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And our response is, sir, I don't have anyone to put me in the... That's not what we say, but we just say, if I had X amount of followers, then I'll be satisfied. Then my deepest longing will be healing, right? We look to every, everywhere but Christ. If I had a, a perfect girlfriend or or boyfriend, then I'll, be, I'll have affirmation. Then I'll be satisfied and be filled. If I have this trophy, if I win this race, if I have these certain types of clothes, then people will respect me. If I have affirmation from my parents, if I win their approval, then I'll be fulfilled. And, and little by little, you're just stuck on this hamster wheel of constant performance that leads to more and more despair. And as long as you're looking away from Christ, And to yourself and your own performance, you will only be led into more anxiety, more depression, and more despair. You will. What does our world say? Love yourself. Pursue yourself, your own desires. But Jesus is standing in front of us saying, do you want to be healed? 38 years of helpless, 
hopeless misery. That is until, seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus comes to ask us sinners a simple question. I love this. Let's go back to verse 6. And we're just going to end focusing on Christ here. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The man responded, as we saw, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And look, Jesus kind of just ignores him a little bit. He's like, I know that you're looking elsewhere. But Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And so lastly, we see Jesus's power over sin and death. So we saw a man's spiritual deadness. We saw the bankruptcy of man's religion. And now we see Jesus' power over sin and death. Don't you love how Jesus just singles this man out? Think, it's said that there's a multitude of invalids, yet Jesus' heart is set upon this man. And though this man did not see Jesus coming, it says in the text that Jesus saw him. And isn't that true of all of us who were once lost in sin? We weren't looking for Christ. We weren't seeking Christ. Yet he saw us. And with eyes of mercy, Jesus locks on the man. And he sees him lying there. He, he sees him in his state. And then look what it says in the text. It says that not only did he see him, but he knew that he had already been there a long time. See, Jesus' is om, uh, uh, omniscience, he's all-knowing, and he knew that he had been there a long time. He knew his state. He knew his misery. And though the man did not know Jesus, Jesus knew him. And this is just a beautiful picture of sovereign election, is it not? He comes walking right up to the man. What did the man do to, to deserve Jesus to come to him? Was it because this man had more maybe inherent faith? Was it because he maybe did a little bit more good works than the other invalids there? What qualified this man for Jesus to come to him and offer such free grace? Do you want to be healed? Nothing in that man. That's the answer. The very thing that qualified him was the fact that he was a spiritual invalid, was the fact that he was destitute, helpless, and hopeless. And this is good news. It's true of us that Jesus did not come to save and heal the righteous, but the unrighteous. He came to not heal those who are already healed, but those who are sick, right? And so the very thing that qualifies us to receive forgiveness and free grace is the fact that we are a sinner. So as long as you think that you are self-righteous in and of yourself, then you will be blinded to the gospel. You won't want it. You won't see your need. But the very thing that qualifies us for salvation is the fact that we are sinners. This is what Jonathan Edwards says about us. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Jesus comes up to this man. He says, do you want to be healed? Just such grace. 
Think about it. Jesus doesn't give any if-then statements. I'll heal you if you do X, Y, or Z. If you get your life right together, then I will heal you. You have to owe your whole entire life to me, then I will pay it all. What does the song say? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We flip that, right? I need to earn. I need to, I need to earn all back, all, all, all my sins. I need to merit it, and then Jesus will pay for my sins. No, no if-thens. He just comes up and says, do you want to be healed? I love that. So the question is for us, this pool of Bethsaida, we're at the pool and Jesus comes to you in his word through me saying, do you want to be healed? Maybe you're a believer and you are, you're filled with guilt and shame. You struggle with your assurance. Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to be healed? Come to me. You're lost. You've never loved Jesus. You love your sin. You love, you love going after the world. Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to be healed? Turn to me. Look unto me and be saved, right? Turn to me. And I love Jesus' power. Jesus' power over sin. What does it say in verse 8? Jesus just says to him, he comes uninvited. You don't have to invite Jesus in. He comes and he says, get up, take your bed and walk power over sin and death this hopeless disease that no one could cure jesus can and that's true of our sin is it not i love that jesus's power and authority over sin and death jesus has a power that he gives to us through the holy spirit to help us as we walk the christian life and so how do we respond to this glorious text well believer to if i could address you Before you can walk, you must first be healed. This is true of any Christian or non-Christian. Before you could follow Jesus, you must be healed. It's like some of you surfers. You can't surf unless you have a wave. So something must come, the wave comes first and then you can surf, right? What comes first is you need to be healed. We need to be justified. We need to go back to the gospel, Healing comes first, and then we begin to walk. Grace comes first, and then we obey. And this is the key to the the gospel mystery of sanctification, is that Christ's healing through the gospel is all comprehensive. Notice the man didn't like have half his body healed, and he's got to go fix the rest. He's hopping on one leg. No, he's he's walking. And think about it. He's been paralyzed his whole life. So his legs were probably uh, atrophied, like just bony, right? He's never walked, and yet he's full strength, and he's walking. And that's what Christ does when he saves us. It's an all-comprehensive salvation. And so Christ's healing through the gospel is the way we now walk. And the same way we're healed in the first place by looking to Jesus for salvation is the same way that we are to walk and live the Christian life, by returning to the healing medicine of the gospel over and over and over. We need to keep going back, believers, to the sin-killing medicine of the gospel, to the devotion-producing hill of Calvary, to behold Christ. And just as justification is wrought by looking away from ourselves to Christ, the alien righteousness that he provides, by faith we look to him, so it is in our sanctification. 
We need to lift our eyes up. Our help comes from the Lord. We just sang that. Lift our eyes off ourselves and look to our help, to the all-powerful Savior who gives us the Holy Spirit, who enables us and empowers us to live for Jesus. And so the Savior who by God's power raised was raised from the dead, that same power now resides in us who are saved as we're brought to union with Christ. That's the good news. We need to continue to go back to Christ and allow His person and His work for us melt our hearts so that we would live for Him and walk in Him, abide in Him. And we walk with gratitude. That's how we respond with gratitude. Thankfulness. Joy. And so, the question is for all of us. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? In fact, Jesus doesn't need our permission to heal us. (laughs) He just heals the guy. Get up. And as a Christian, yes, I already am saved. But it's an already not yet. I long for the day when I'm fully healed glorification with Jesus long for that and so I live this life now looking to the future hope that we have in him that's our kind savior our powerful savior and so don't look to someone else or to other things don't look to the pools of this world look to Jesus and allow his power through the word through prayer through fellowship to encourage our hearts to continue to get up to pick up our stuff and to walk and live for him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the good news of grace. There's free grace that you offer this poor sinner, Lord. And it's true of all of us. I even now as I preach, I'm just filled with so much thanksgiving that while I was in eighth grade sitting, listening to preaching, that I was a spiritual invalid. I was sitting there at the pool not knowing I needed salvation, yet you came. You saw me, you knew me, and you said, I I will make you clean. I will heal you. And it was by grace, uninvited. And Lord, I pray that you would just capture our hearts, if we're believers, that you would fill us up with thanksgiving again, with gratitude And for those here that are still lost in their sin, Lord, I pray that they would come to realize that everything in this life will leave them and forsake them. But there is one that will never leave and forsake them, and that is Jesus Christ. And they could spend their lives being restless and weary and spend all of eternity cast away from you. Or they could receive the free gift of salvation by a simple look to Jesus by faith. And I pray that they would do that. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.